It is no coincidence that the genre most concerned with mankind's capacity for darkness first emerges in the years which first Europe, then the world, are engulfed in an all-encompassing war. Film noir may have a firm foundation in the dime store crime paperbacks of the 1930s, but the genre's wartime ascent owes everything to the omnipresent threat of fascism and to the evil that can take root in the hearts of man, shaped in no small part by a host of emigre directors the fatal cynicism of film noir arrives filtered through the lens of real-life horror. And that's just the American golden age of the genre. Now, transport yourself to the European continent, to the truest precursors of film noir, where lurid crime and bleak realism clash with genuine humanist tendencies. How does the femme fatale factor into this? As with last week's entries, she is easier to empathize with in the films we'll be dissecting tonight. But she does have a noticeable capitalist streak, an aspirational drive that we will return to time and time again. And in the case of two of this evening's films, we are drawing upon a text that we will be very acquainted with by the end of the season, the seminal work of hard-boiled fiction, The Postman Always Rings Twice. We may be dropped in the midst of a war-torn Europe, but American pop culture hovers high above, never entirely out of mind. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Felser, joined by my friend, Kristen Dotson. And as implied, we are staying put in Europe for another night. We've got two more noir precursors out of France, and one especially pivotal one out of Italy. And most interestingly, two of these are the first two adaptations of James M. Cain's classic, The Postman Always Rings Twice. And it does feel notable that one of the cornerstone hard-boiled novels found its way to the screen in France and Italy before Hollywood got a hold. More on that to come, but first, let's dive into our non-cane entry this evening, Jean Renard's La Bête Humaine. La, Be La Bête Humaine. The Human Beast. La Bête Humaine? La Bête Humaine. La Bête Human. Human. Labet human. Labet human. human. Keeping all of that. On l'a retrouvé assassiné dans le train qui m'a amené. Vous vous l'entiez, où étiez-vous pendant ce temps-là Moi, j'étais dans le couloir. Et vous n'avez vu passer personne Pourquoi n'avez-vous rien dit Labet human. It's from 1938, directed by Jean Renoir, back again, starring Jean Gabin, Simone Simon, Fernand Ledoux, written by Jean Renoir and Denise Leblanc, based on Emile Zola's La Bête Humaine. Uh, we've got the French heartthrob Jean Gabin playing Jacques Lantier, a railroad man with a tortured soul whose beloved train breaks down in the port town of Le Havre. The station master, Robard, has murdered the man who seduced his wife, Severine. And soon Severine finds herself cozying up to Lantier, beginning an affair and enticing him to murder her husband. Will Lantier give in to the darkness within him? And where does his love truly lie with Severine or with the rails? Um, well, uh this is um this is one i'd honestly thought i'd seen before and it and i hadn't i was wrong about that i think i it swept up in the, the poetic realist movement and having seen a number of renoir from the time i thought i'd check this off and i hadn't 
And uh, so this one was all new to me. What about you, Fred? Uh, yeah, also new to me. Uh, I've only my only Renoir had been uh, has been um, Rules of the Game, uh, the Grand Illusion, and um, the one that we just watched for our last episode, um, uh, La Chienne. And this is smack in between Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game, and and which are are Renoir's biggest films. Uh, yeah, I was wanting Jean Gabin again, like you know. He's he's great, mm-hmm. very uh, charming on screen. Yes, uh, uh, he's. Uh, I think I think it's such an interesting choice putting him in here. And apparently, he had um, he really pushed for this kind of role too. I've liked him since I I think the first the first film I saw him in was Pepe Lamoco, which is one of my favorites of the the 30s, and uh, and a, and another great proto noir uh, with. With uh, with him navigating the the um, labyrinth of the Casbah and, uh, and and laying low in there, um, uh, so I like Ben quite a bit. Uh, he um, he is playing he he it's such an interesting part for him here. I feel like uh, he's he's clearly the romantic lead, but. Uh, I don't think anyone was prepared for, uh, from from what I gathered reading up on this a little bit, for just like the darkness that is pulled out from within. And yeah, the uh, like Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde element he's is like a, odd. He's like a universal monster. Yeah, it yeah, is, he's just he's gripped by an insanity of the blood from generations of alcoholics, uh, which is such a weird and a overall i i you know i really enjoy this movie and while i was clearly on a hot streak here um i think the thing that's holding it back from me loving it as much as i do rules of the game and the grand illusion is the fact that it has this like plot device to make him murder rather than having it come out of character and like all of the drama that has preceded it yeah i kind of uh it's a bit jarring and i and for me it it wouldn't it doesn't play at all on the level of looking for for naturalism in this he is he is a, a movie monster and yeah. more like it, a giallo is, right like it does it kind of has that that sort of vibe to it like this is a man overcome with with this primal hereditary urge uh, and and he's only sated by uh by the machine and we'll get into that dynamic, uh, but uh, but I I do think that in like in, in anticipating what noir is going to become, this like the, these like instincts that are stirring within within a man, I think it's uh, I think it's fascinating, and I I don't really mind how abrupt it is coming on is at least if you're not looking for this as a as a slice of realism which it is well i guess i guess that's poetic realism for you. Say, it's, 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 it's heavy on the poetic side is, of poetic realism it's it's leaning harder into the poetic um but i think that's also like the with all three of these i think it's it's we did a we did a good job putting all three of these together these are well this seems like the outlier but it's not it totally fits in with the other with the no, other. absolutely and i think part of it is the fact that all three treat the human drama as more important than the pulp elements you know and that i think we'll see when we get to uh you know including the next two and then when we finally get to the american version of uh Postman always drinks twice is that the American version and the noir movement like leans into the sleaze and the thrill of it and is about the like the 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 chase of the murder and all three of these are much more about like imbuing these human characters to some degree even even within um Renoir's which as you said is not like particularly grounded but it's still very interested in the characters and is interested in like treating them as human beings and as and being sympathetic to all of them. And that is certainly not the noir way. No, no, not at all. And I've, so I, I've been reflecting on this, um, this kind of shifting dynamic quite a bit. And this is, 
this is relevant to the arc that we're on here, although part of it draws from American cinema of the, the 30s. But but I've been watching a a, a lot of, of pre-code on um on Criterion lately and have been and have been so struck. I think it's fascinating that we get the 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 hard-boiled novels are coming out in the 30s, right? Um, but but we aren't we aren't seeing that trend reflected immediately in in cinema, and and we're going to get to that with with Kane and how long it takes to make its way stateside. It's reset. It's received in Europe quicker than it is in Hollywood, and and there's still in the the those early '30s films in the first half of the decade, especially there's it's like the last vestiges of glamour, like like true uh, and you know um, Thin Man, Nick and Nora, um, like there's still there's this real decadence and it's and it's running and it's understandable i guess if you think about it as as like this is depression era america and these are fantasies these are these are this is escapist this is people being able to imagine themselves um strolling down fifth avenue and right you pay your nickel and you're gonna go in there all day and you're gonna live a different life and 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 europe's not going through that europe's going through something very different and and is seeing and seeing the rise of fascism right now and is developing very different so it's under it's understandable that this the this very moralistic this like shades of black black and white and and all the shades in between why why they're embracing this kind of story quicker uh, that will come to you know take shape in america is what we know as noir i mean that tracks Perfectly for me, yeah. and and you know, and and in the you know, not just the the emigres coming to America after this period, and also the war itself coming to our shores and breaking through the isolationist trend of that, that America was on. You know, I mean, there's a reason that like Lindbergh was a serious, seriously considered as a presidential candidate, despite being an isolationist and a you know Nazi sympathizer, like. That was that was that was uh, it was it was not in our backyard, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, it was in our backyard, and then and then we were very aware of fascism. Yeah, um, and by and certainly by the time that that we get to uh, the late '30s, where these films are are coming out, where um, where where uh, Remar does well, of course, he's already he's already gone in uh, into this with grand illusion this takes um this takes a, a different approach and then rules of the game is its own its own thing but he's he's a man with a lot, lot on his mind right now and um uh, and it's not hard to see this helping tee off the the noir genre in a really, a really big way where, where do we want to start when we're, we're picking this apart we have uh, we should probably devote some time to our femme fatale, as uh, as I guess that's what we're focusing on, right? Right. Uh, no, it was interesting because I so I've actually I uh, I can't remember if you've seen it before, but I've seen Human Desire, the American remake. Of oh, I have not. This um, it's been a, it's been a few years. I don't uh, the, but um, you know that is very much noir, and she's very much femme fatale, except that's, that's Gloria Graham, right? Um, I think so yeah, and we'll be we'll be seeing that. I no good no good reason for that. And it's like one of her you know biggest noir noir like size most sizable noir roles. So it'll be fun to get to because we'll we'll watch it towards the the end of the first half of the season. But um, but when we were watching this earlier version, I was you know because of its pacing, because it was so interested in its characters, and because it starts off so much about like. Um, the the station master husband and his murder scheme it kind of feels caught up it, I, at first i was almost like should we have put this in a different season like this should this have been in our cover-up season where that we'll eventually get to where you start off with a murder and then it's about people trying to get away with it um but we do get there right like by the end of this movie we get to her trying to convince him to kill her husband but again it's just like so much more interested in the the characters than in the the sticky details of the plot that it just takes us a while to get there i think there's uh, uh i'm for for 
reasons very particular to the femme fatale. I'm very glad that we paired all three of these together. Um, I think that of of the three, and this is totally in keeping with with our last episode too, um, Renoir just doesn't seem that interested in women. <laughs> um, it, well, that too. It, it's, uh, I, and I think that's typical of uh, all all of his films, except for uh, all of his early films. The not the case with the river, but um, but like that's that's a good deal later and a good deal different. But uh, but I. I I, I don't I think that his his interest here is on that that struggle of of uh, man against nature and man and uh, man torn between um, between a more domestic love and and the freedom of the rails and the machine and his love of the train love of the train I mean <laughs> there there are portions that's real like this is just a movie about trains like it's not about it's just gorgeous. He, he romanticizes the rails and the and the train the, the machine. It does. It looks it looks damn good. It was actually. Um, um, I I think last season, which was earlier this year, I'd I'd recommended uh, Frankenheimer's The Train, and so I was kind of right, reminded of that. Obviously, there's less mayhem and carnage of a vehicular uh, type, but the both movies are very interested in just shooting in gorgeous black and white trains moving around the French countryside. I've probably said this before, and I will continue to say it, but I firmly believe that the history of cinema is intimately tied to the train. Not sure. It's it's my it's my my grand unifying theory of of, of cinema, but uh, but it's so it's so true here. Also, an interesting change from where we we came from last week is that that with with Gaban being actually a heartthrob. Um, he, we, we have moved away from the, the, uh, protagonist just as a buffoon. And we, we have, um, we have people with that, that you are rooting for a little bit more just by virtue of how they're, how they're presented to us. Doesn't mean they don't have demons. Doesn't mean that, uh, that, that there's not a lot to unpack there, but we're, we're beyond the Professor Rath and, and uh, and the more buffoonish tendencies of our protagonists. We are, but we're still going back to the femme fatale. We we are still maintaining that through line of like fallen woman, quote unquote, right? That like you know the the instigator for the plot here really is the fact that um, oh, what's her name? I scroll too far down on our 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 walkthrough here. Um, uh, that Severine uh, had previously been the mistress of a rich man, and learning this drives the station master insane. Essentially, that's, that's what starts it. That that's the that ignites our plot and sets everything else in motion. Um, right, so it's essentially like the, box. the the sequel to you know if if the movies from last episode hadn't already ended in tragedy. They were essentially, this was essentially be their sequel and it would start off with tragedy and then just get worse from there. Once again, Renoir has our, our femme fatale um, murdered on a bed. Hmm. He's so, working through some stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he framed it differently, but, uh, but, but it, it plays, Kind of similar, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and like the, I thought, and it, it was interesting. I don't think it was great that like he sets up the blood thing in the first act, and then it kind of disappears for most of the second act, and then it kind of comes back at the end. But I did like that his first moment of. Um, almost strangling that girl uh, by the train yeah. tracks is then the same location that he, he ends up being caught at, at, at the end. Like I thought that was a nice little closing the loop and and sort of paying off, you know, thematically what, what's going on there. Without being too over the top or in your face. I think there's a, there's, there's some nice closure there. Uh, this, this is certainly a very well considered film. Um, I, I think he, I think when Mark clearly knows his way around imagery, he knew what he would, uh, his, the symbolism is all very intentional. 
his focus on the rails feels um, feels like that's where his interests really really lie. That's the story he's interested in telling. Um, man, man and machine, man and man and uh, and his uh, more primal impulses, um, and and how a woman can destabilize it all. Yeah, yeah, because it really is like she enters into this world of men that is the train and like and because we we do also see this like network and bonhomie of the men of the train life and you know some of them are married and have women in there but they also have women in every town and um you know like his buddy on the train who's also in um the grand illusion um uh, i can't think of that his name he's like the comic relief in both um yeah he's very yeah, good yeah. in both um kind of dipping into that that men at work ethos of like hawks and carpenter and um there's definitely a, a camaraderie um and there's a and that just like that that romanticizing of the profession yeah. um, for sure and that's not necessarily something i i think of with the, i associate as much with the rest of renoir um i i, I I don't really, I, I don't really pin that on, on a lot of his other films, but it's, um, I mean, it, it's clearly like that creating that environment, it, it, that, that is so much of, of Gaben's identity here. And it's really fleshed out in a way that, um, that just makes Severine seem, um, I mean, she's just the destabilizing force. Yeah. I mean, like somebody who dressed up as Thomas the Tank Engine uh, for Halloween <laughs> a few times as a child, and who's currently reading Thomas the Tank Engine to his daughter every night. Will uh, be doing trains, it again. Trains are cool, man. Trains are cool. I get it. Trains are cool. I I love trains. Um, I, I I'm sure we'll we'll get to some other train movies, right? I mean, we'll oh, revisit we'll this sure story in like five episodes or something. Yes. I actually did um, have the thought of like we could do like a train noir episode. I mean, we'll get trains and double indemnity. You know, it's it, trains are almost as as integral to the femme fatale noir as as the insurance salesman is. Yeah, we've got we've got plenty more to go on. I think I, I'm all for a train a mini train season. Won't have to hard sell me on that. Strangers um, on a train, throw mama from a train. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll find some stuff. Oh yeah. I, oh, I'll 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 throw Shanghai Express in there for sure. Um, shall we move along into our? Uh, I think the train uh, is leaving the station. We are. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go ha 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 into our uh, our James M. Kane doubleheader here. Um, yes. First up, the last turning from nineteen thirty nine. Et pour le reste, vous n'avez pas de préférence. Je <rire> peux rien vous cacher. Vous allez encore me dire de me mêler de ce qui me regarde, mais ça vous intéresserait pas d'avoir du travail? Quel travail? Ben, celui que je fais. The Last Turning uh, was directed by Pierre Chanel and stars Fernand Gravy. Gravy? Grave. Fernand Grave. Maybe. This is a real mistake doing this episode with, I mean, at least on my end, somebody who barely passed Spanish in high school 15 years ago. Uh, uh, my my French is entirely derived from from film. So, yeah. uh, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the well, downsides of learning everything you ever knew from the movies. Apologies. Um, sincere so apologies. Yeah, sincere apologies for last episode and this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, and many Probably more to come. future episodes. Yes. Uh, but uh, Michelle Simone makes another appearance. And Corinne Lucher. Uh, this was written by Charles Spock and Henry Torre, Torre, Henri Torre, uh, based on The Postman Always Rings Twice, our first but not last go round. Uh, so, in a fairly straightforward adaptation, The Last Turning has Frank a drifter, Frank, uh, Frank a drifter, arriving at a gas station run by Nick and his much younger, younger wife, Cora. Frank strikes up an affair with Cora, who then encourages him to kill her husband, allowing them to end up together. It's a setup we'll be returning to with many subsequent adaptations, and though they will differ in some key aspects, that core dynamic of the trio will remain the same. Cora and Frank will succeed in dispatching Nick, but it will come at a price. It almost feels uh, uh, Sisyphean. 
just like you yes know, we're gonna force them to repeat this again over and again and over and over or like one of those sci-fi movies it's about how like we keep repeating the same mistakes in our lives over and over it's it's just like a different language different names but the same same basic mistake and yet it's also can wind up being very different as we'll talk about with this i think this one's to me feels like the the biggest outlier so far um so yeah as we're saying first cinematic adaptation uh the postman always rings twice which was published in 1934 by james m kane uh, and was and still is celebrated widely as one of the great american crime novels have you read it i have not i'm uh never was never a king guy like even as the movies i i really they're great movies but they never uh i was always more of a private detective guy i am uh i'm gonna i guess i'm gonna be blasphemous considering around this uh this podcast since i i have read it and i'm i'm not uh i'm not a huge fan so i guess i'm not a cane guy either uh there's i i recognize though what I recognize the DNA here of a of a, a classic hard-boiled story. I get it. It's very simple at, at the heart of it. This is um, that this is stranger comes into town. Eve dynamic of the trio, and yeah, uh, it temp- tempted into into murder. Uh, things unspool from there. I it 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 makes sense why this sparked the way it did and why and it's also a breezy read um it's mm. not long it's it's a, a page turner i totally get it um uh, and i think is for reasons that we touched on early in the the episode i also get now why it took a little while for this to spark uh in hollywood and and why our first two adaptations are coming from the european continent even once it does get made by Hollywood, it feels, while it leans into the more sordid murder details, it is much more discreet about the sex than these adaptations are. So I think part of it, too, is just sort of, you know, the Hays Code and ascendancy in America versus what Europeans was doing. It's been a minute. I've not I've not revisited it yet for this season, and it's been a little while since I've seen it, and I know that it's not as... Uh, I know the American version is not as as explicit when it comes. I mean, it's to... implied. Like it's not like, but you know, it just can't address it in the way they can here, where people are clearly like. And I think that's even more so with the Italian one that people are clearly sleeping with each other. And I think the the American is is just you know as is often so often the case from that period. It's just much more like, if you know, you know. And that's coming right kind of at the height of the American adaptation, right? Forty six, um, height of the the noir the golden age of noir everything's in full swing by that point um we're we're post-war uh it's uh it 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 feels like like that's the time for that adaptation to arrive and yet Mm -hmm. we have a really in in the last turning we have a very faithful adaptation of the the book from from my recollections of it at least uh but it does um it does really seem to to hew almost Almost, almost to a fault, I think, to some of the the elements of the the book that that I think Asasion does a, a better job of of striking out on its own way. I mean, to me, I also it's been a little while since I've seen Postman, the the nineteen forty six Hollywood version. Um, to me, the biggest difference between all three is well, that's not true. One of the big differences to me between all three is that is how they treat the Nick character, right? And to me, in um, the last turning, Nick is like sympathetic, and oh well, he's uh, Michelle S- Simon, right? He's, I mean, that's he's... part of it, and he's giving a great, and it's so great seeing it back to back with last week because it shows his range chameleon. so well. I, I love that guy. Um... Yeah, that he goes from this like completely different class status outlook, the whole and sells it like back to back is 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 highly effective but even beyond that the way like the way he's written the way he like truly seems to see frank as a friend and is like pushing and pushing and pushing and you you know i i think it it kind of unbalances the the audience relationship a little bit i mean i i really enjoyed this adaptation a lot don't get me wrong 
but I, I think it changes the way that it plays um, as part and also as part of like the larger interest in, you know, poetic realism versus noir and what it views as like the reason to make the movie. Again, I think this is much more interested in the characters and is just sort of like observing who these people are and why they make these decisions rather than being like sex and murder. That's some racy stuff. Am I right? Ooh. Um, it says just like, these are people who are, are trapped in their, in their, in their, in their, um, self-destroying loops and, and cannot get out of their own ways. Yeah. Uh, Frank is, and, and I think he always has this to, to some extent, we'll dissect it in Assessione because it's its own thing, but, but Frank is, is such a cipher and mm. he's at, and and that's and that's that archetype. That's the drifter, right? That is, and that's a character that having uh, ha, uh, we're going to return to in the next episode, um, where we uh, that this 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 character that just wanders in that uh, that is um, unmoored and uh, yes. No, no, I think you're right, and I think yeah. to me it just sort of clarified for me. Like, I think the difference between these three adaptations of the same material is who it feels like is driving the story and who is both in terms of like Good call. narrative focused screen presence, everything. Right. So here to me, it feels like Nick is kind of driving the story, right? Like they're, they're really trying to get out of the situation and he keeps pulling them back in and he kind of, it feels much more like he unwittingly leads to his own demise is sort of a little bit more of the focus. Huh. Um, I, I do. I do see that. For, for sure. And he just feels a little bit more of like the, the lodestone of the piece, whereas in Ossession, uh, it feels much more interested in Gino, the Frank character. Um, he's not really like driving it because he's so much more of a himbo, which I which I really enjoyed, but we'll, we'll talk about that for the next one. And I feel like Postman, it's, it's driven by the core character, right? Like that is like a star-turning role. And that that to me is, is what makes that such a definitive femme fatale movie is that it is her movie. I, um, so I, I guess I get that for here, but I still, I, I still kind of, maybe it's cause I, I thought Corinne Lachard was, was quite good as Cora in, in this. Um, she's very and, good. I'm not like, and I, she's, I, she's great. And, and I think in a, in a way that, that I could, I could see, um, even though I felt she, even though I felt sympathy for her, um, I could still see the wheels turning, and I could still see her her choosing to be calculating and 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 trying to um, trying to push Frank. Frank is is more at the whim of mm. of circumstance here. I I I do agree with that, but I I think that Cora's got more pull on him here. Uh, no, that's that's fair. Kind of walked away with it. No, and like I think everybody does a, does a great job in this, I, and it's not. I think I'm having difficulty articulating exactly the the thing that I'm getting at, but that to me that the um, there's just some like the again it's some amalgam of for me the writing and the performer and the performance all come together to make. Nick feel like the most important part of the story to me um, in this version, even though he only, you know, he dies halfway through. Um, right. and that was no, he's, he's felt, he's felt throughout. You're right. Having a, an actor, an established actor at that time uh, with, with, with real presence right. uh, uh, for it to hinge around. I think that, that casting. Of, of... I think part of it is just like, who's, who's the camera like, in love with kind of right like i think the camera's eaten up michael simone here and i think it's uh eaten up gino and then in obsession and then i think it's uh eaten up cora in in uh postman of the rings twice uh that is a that is a spot on take <laughs> i i yeah where's um uh, that's where where's the gaze falling where's the yeah. camera where, and where I think is that's, the camera positioning itself? He feels the most interesting. Maybe it's the best way to put it. When you're watching Blue Angel, you know it's it. It doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter how 
how big of a performance Emil Jennings is giving. The if Dietrich is on screen, you're looking at her. Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe it's yeah. So maybe it's not most important, but I think most in who who which character the movie finds most interesting. Mm-hmm. I think here it finds Nick most interesting. I like I that think, reading a lot. Yeah, and it sure is present in our next century. Yes, um, it's very clear. It is, where, it, it is where so fascinating. Country. Like we, there's a few movies that we returned to a few times during the detective, but I, I feel like this is. Uh, there's no movie that we watched there's no story we watched four different times during the private detective season right no we kept going we kept going back i, I think we did uh there's a couple um, of chandlers that got three, doubled three three different um visits with uh, uh farewell my lovely right yeah 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 three different yeah. visits with farewell my lovely Mo- moose kept coming back yeah but yeah four will be a, a high watermark for sure uh not one we are likely to to eclipse um I, a few other notes i wrote um i i wrote in on on this but uh uh there's something about the uh, the the setting here and that that starting out the entire first half of this being being so isolated at the um at, at the fuel stop and and having things unfold from there drifter coming in uh uh, uh out of out of the wilderness, out from down on down the road, from whatever past he came from, uh, the uh, just like the 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 bar at nighttime and and every uh, it feels so isolated mm-hmm. and and we're so used to our noirs being being in dense populated areas and that's not we're we'll we'll visit cities and we see more civilization we definitely do in a session um, but. But it's just something about how remote this story starts out that really lets it hone in on that that core group and let you know who's important. This is not a this is not a story that's trying to confuse you. It's not trying to it's not trying to overwhelm you. Um, it's it's just at its core about uh, about uh, people making desperate dire decisions and having to pay the consequences. Yeah, no, I think it's actually a great point of something else that sets all three aside in explicit and implicit fashion is is the setting, right? Is the context of where each story is taking place. And that, yeah, the French countryside makes for a very different experience than the rural Italian kind of poverty-stricken while in the midst of, of fascism and, and Mussolini. And then both of those are very different from california in the 40s and like you can feel the warm sunshine in the postman that you cannot feel in, in either of these two movies right like that is it is you say, uh, warm, you say warm sunshine like it, it it doesn't still feel oppressive though but, but it, it does but it you can still it, does it does but it it like the the idea of a vagabond wanderer in california is a different lifestyle than in the 40s is a different lifestyle than being that in 30s Mussolini Italy and is different from pre-war 30s France right like and and I don't have a lot of context different. I don't have a lot of context for that European version of of this it comes from these kind of movies but like like I think in America we have especially if you watch a lot of older movies you've got a, a firm grasp on that drifter character that hobo the um, whether it's Don Draper's past or whether it's um, um, so, like Preston Sergis movies or something like that, you've got you 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 have an, a sense of this character as an archetype. But I don't know that I don't know what he well, like, I think also, is like in Europe as much. Right, and I think also like part of that is how America is so much more of a car consumer car culture, right? Like the we here had so much more space thanks to you know ripping pillaging and um colonizing that we could expand to accommodate cars and streets and fill our country with highways that go every which way especially like by the time you're talking about california um compared to you know again especially Europe 1930s like 
obviously there are cars and all, all these movies revolve around that but it's it's again it's just like i think that that difference kind of helps facilitate i don't know it just i think it it feels different contextually and i think it also directly impacts the characters in the plot in the way that the each story ex- executes in slightly different ways yeah uh uh, and and I had a few other notes I put down on on the the story itself, but I'm almost, I'm wondering if we should if if we should lump those in when we kind of pull both of our entries together. Yeah, and we're already like pulling in the next. Yeah, we should probably yeah. move on here. So yeah. um. So so then we can at least analyze our our two our two postman versions side by side. Shall we move on then and uh, and and officially start up our talk on Asesión? Let's do it. Hey, who's working? Hey, Vince, I believe. Hey, Vince, I have a typey. Stop about it. Non deve essere molto comodo, Giovanotto. Viaggiare sul duro, eh? Va a vedere che dovremmo mettere un materasso per i vagabondi. Avanti, avanti, facciamo presto. Oh, bisogna stare attenti, eh, perché quelli sono capaci di portarci via tutto un pollaio. Quanti litri vi faccio oggi? Eh, fammi il pieno. All right, a session directed by Lucino Visconti from 1943. It stars Massimo Giorotti as Gino, Clara Calame as Giovanna, and Juan Delanda as Giuseppe, and uh, not- notable also uh, Elio Marcuso as uh, the Spaniard or uh, Spagnolo. Uh, so this, this is uh, a, a new edition for, for Visconti's version. Uh, also based on The Postman Always Rings Twice, but this time around, Frank is Gino, Cora is Giovanna, and Nick is Giuseppe. And while the action still unfolds initially around Giuseppe's petrol station, Visconti infuses more scope to the story. Key here is the introduction of another drifter, Spagnolo, who represents a counterclaim on Gino's heart and soul in more ways than one. As with the last turning, however, Giuseppe is not long for this world, which will leave Gino and Giovanna to navigate the fallout. A lot of G first names. Lots of Gs. Gs, Gs, Gs. Uh, This is Visconti's feature film debut, um, which to me is wild. I think this is an excellent debut uh excellent first time out uh he had previously worked with Renoir um which uh which is uh I guess not terribly surprising I think you can see that a bit in his uh in in his approach uh but um he's also um he was born into Italian nobility um he was very anti-fascist and very gay and all of that makes sense here uh this I I really like um, I really like this film on on rewatch even more than I did before and I particularly like it because I it's like a rare film that I can see as like a crossroads of two genres with with Italian neorealism moving in one direction and and film noir moving in another and it's and it's not often that you can see two things reflected so clearly in a in a a single film i think yeah. it's, uh, it's fascinating it's definitely kind of bouncing back and forth between between those two i i would say it is both more interested in and more successful at the italian neorealism than the uh than the pulp elements i thought it was a great movie don't get me wrong but oh i totally it, agree you can see where the interest interest lies um but it's also very successful at that i mean like yeah like you said the way that it opens up the world and uh the scene that sticks with me is giuseppe going to that singing contest and and winning like yeah. that to me is was the yeah. moment where i was just like kind of fell in love with the movie just because it 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 fleshed out its world so much it was just sort of like this is the thing that happens these are regular people going about their lives they don't realize that they're caught up in this noir murder plot <laughs> have you seen much visconti i haven't actually i know i i mean i between my my considering my love of burt lancaster there's no reason i, I haven't 
I, I have no excuse for not having seen the leopard yet but um, the leopard is one I of am. the great movies i will I, I love it it's um it's got scope it's um it's got some of the best costumes ever L lancaster is is wonderful um elaine delon and uh and claudia cardinale um mm. it's 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 got a, a lot going for it, um, but um, but I and I'd liked Assassin when I'd seen it. I don't know, ten years ago or something. But uh, but I it, it clicked with me in a bigger way this time, um, and uh, and I I think that uh, that it's certainly having having now immersed myself more in Postman. It's really interesting to see what decisions Visconti's making to markedly set this apart uh, and uh, and I think mostly for better uh, I, I I'm curious to get into the to Giovanna and how how the film treats her uh, which which I which I think as all characters here are, are handled with a degree of sympathy but there's one there's one particular aspect that this country hammers in here that I don't quite love um, hmm. so I'm curious to hear what that is um, yeah it's uh the yeah one of the interesting things to me watching this this version is how much it like cannibalizes the plot of the book to serve its own purposes right so he arrives and he's they they enter this affair and but they don't do the the bathroom fall fake out um they just they skip that plot beat and which they, is which, which works so because well, I I don't I I feel like that's one of the weaker moments. That's one of the more forced elements that I mm. I didn't I don't care for in the in the book or in the uh, or in the last turning. So so that's I, mean, a, I like think it's fine. I think it's um you know because I think I, I mean I think it, it, each movie's after different ends, and so it 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 serves one movie and would serve the other, right? Because I think part of it here too, like I think the reason it's setting aside whether or not it's forced you know I, the reason it's in the original text and is is in the other two versions is that it gives the the authorities a reason to be suspicious but i think here again because it's about fascist italy they don't need a reason to be suspicious they just are suspicious and like that's just you know in the, so much of the back half of the movie is just him living in a police state and so you don't need that that fake out or that 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 opt out moment for their decision making. It's just, and also I think the uh, fact that you you don't need the um, you know, her leaving her walking away from him at the beach so that he then has uses that as justification to starting the affair because there's there's only there's there's no explicit affair here, um, with the 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 cat <laughs> the cat wrangler yes the cat the cat lady cat wrangler cat trainer. Um, I think that that's a, a very, very strong point about the the like this is a naturally suspicious uh, environment. Uh, it's just pervasive. Mussolini's son allegedly stormed out of the screening of this movie, saying, "This is not Italy," <laughs> and um, and subsequently um, did his best to bury the film. And hmm. uh, and it apparently yeah. only only survived because Visconti had hidden a print in his attic or something like that. And at least allegedly that is why we still have a have a copy Thank of goodness. it yeah no i mean i believe it and, and i think it like prefigures a strong a strong through line in italian cinema of reckoning with this right i mean like the conformist or citizen above suspicion or you know plenty of plenty of films that are are more fully grapple with directly the sense of of you cannot trust the police and you cannot trust the state yeah uh, absolutely and and like that's just what's that's just what's hovering over them obviously there's interaction there but like it keeps the um uh, it, it it keeps the action very much on the ground level um and and right there with our characters well, no, he does solve the affair he's, he's with the ballerina i just remembered the ballerina oh, at the end oh yeah not not a cat not no, no cat she's she's still there she's just not a cat lady um but, uh, uh, but yeah. Uh, so, so what? Um, what what we established earlier is, is just how interested, how fascinated Visconti is with with Gino and with and, and with exploring 
the push and pull that this man has, and we also just exploring have, the planes of his face, like yes, it is. It the camera it idolizes him. him. Uh, it uh, it idolizes him, and much like with with Renoir and Labette Iman, um, we we have a a man torn between a a a woman and and a life uh, a, a life on the rails or a life on the road and and that's his his push and pull uh, it's a little bit more uh finely sketched here than it is in uh than, than it is in love that human but uh but and it's in the last turning too right i mean like the if i remember post miller's rings twice is not as like poetic about the the appeal no. of the road no, I don't. Um, I mean, it's been it's been a minute since I read it, but I I I don't well, think the film either. I mean, the American film is what I'm talking about. I, I, but the yeah. but this one I feel like pushes it the most is like, God, yeah, he's got to get out on the road and just be man. free. I can't be chained down like this. And and this is where I and I and I don't I don't know. Like I, I say that it's a bit of a problem for me, but it it's it's just complicated. Is that. Giovanna, and she does so. Um, she she's very good here. I just um, she is she is so that domestic tether, and mm. and it is like the woman is the one that is that her her role is to drag is to be. Yeah, ladies are going to trap you, and hold you down. Like that is definitely the text of the the, the uh, film. Is is look out, guys. Yeah, and it's and it's um it, it is belabored um and 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 yeah it's still it's really potent and i think the scene where she falls asleep amidst the stack the stacking dishes that go on and on and that feels there to me very much like like this is that this is a window into class that most films are not bothering with up to this yeah. point um and like that works it it, it tugs the the enough heartstrings for me and i and i uh uh, and it's a memorable image, but uh, but Giovanna is so conceived as as that like like she is the home she is who's going to pull you down and ground you, and and of course Gino just um, he's he's lured by the the freewheeling life uh, on the road and of course by Bagnolo. Yeah, I was say like uh, we, I, I mean I think this is, we should talk about Spagnolo, the Spaniard, and then we should. I think this is a great segue into just sort of wrapping up for for all three, because um, as you pointed out, it is there's there's just a lot of parallels between all three. But um, but yeah, the Sp I think that's like the the addition of the Spaniard and his time away from the the gas station with the Spaniard and like essentially being in a traveling circus um, and engaging in this whole other romance. It just opens up the movie in such beautiful ways. Um, and it just really feels alive, um, but tender. Yeah, I just I just thought it was very well done. I this is surely of all of all films of its era, this has got to be one of the most overtly queer, right? I I'm I'm tr I'm sure there's other examples I could I could fish for, but but like that 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 feels as explicit as a film is going to make it at this at at this stage. Yeah, I think the other thing that, to me that's interesting about how that then shifts Gino is while all the different iterations of Frank are ciphers and are kind of, you know, led into this plot by the the femme fatale, uh, Gino feels the most just like has no plan, is born along by whims, and is just this this, you know, beautiful idiot who goes from situation to situation and if somebody tells him that they love him he's like okay i'm in until something a new shiny object appears it's like okay i'm into that now and the truth is that that giovanna is a terrible fit for gino yeah it's they they th this is not a you i think you can see in other versions how how they're maybe so bad for each other, they're good for each other. Right. Um, that, I mean, very classic femme fatale dynamic. I mean, we'll see it straight through to Gone Girl of the, like, you bring yeah. out the worst in me, but I bring out the worst in you, and maybe that's the right thing. Uh, that, absolutely. And I think that that's, that, that is a big 
hook of the the book that like you you do feel that there's there these these characters are are destined for each other in that way but but here it it like and i feel i feel so bad for giovanna because like this he is not the man for her no (laughs) yeah like one of the first scenes together she's being like unloading her burdens and like all the things that are wrong in her life and he is just like not understanding he is on a completely different conversation track and and he just um he he's a man that can't make up his mind that follows that follows his whims into and does not does not think ahead does not care to does could never um and that's as much as as Jean Gabin's nature is is to ride the rails that um uh Gino's nature is to is, is to uh Think with his dick. Dive off, yes. Dive off. I mean, let's on be whatever. Oh, yeah. Put more simply. <laughs> um, so but cool. yeah, so but we're, I mean, again, we're bringing it back around to comparing it to the other two. I like. I think we can just kind of dig in because it is, you know, as you pointed out, all three of these male leads are men of freedom who are entrapped by love, which then forces them into situations where they must kill. And it does. It does sort of set up a, a very clear like. The nuclear family is is here to destroy you kind of vibe um admittedly it is like a woman who's married and it's an affair so there's also sort of like very classic like madonna whore complex thing going on too but um but it is sort of a you could be a man either out by yourself or with other men and living a, a, a moral ethical life or you could get in with these these women who will bring you to ruin yeah uh there's there's also something about all three of these that like i would i would classify i would classify these as tragedies and uh, in a way that that even though even if in the the very binary comedy tragedy definition that that would still apply i suppose to film noir but it doesn't feel the same because in noir it feels like people are getting deserved comeuppance and it's a little more delicious and, and, in noir and it's not delicious here it's just you're just no, supposed to feel bad it it is it, it 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 is it is tragic it is heartbreaking um especially in in assession uh I, there's more poetic tragedy in la bat human but but mm-hmm. like in in assession it's 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 a sad it, it it's a sad and inevitable conclusion um and and part of it is I guess knowing that inevitability, and and I guess when you are retracing the same the same story, mm. <laughs> again the Sisyphean aspect of it, it is right. it is truly inevitable. They're they doomed to make the same mistakes the again and again. Uh, um, yeah, and I mean, actually, that kind of also reminded me of something else that was interesting was even just the way that each movie treats the demise of their main character. I don't, I, I kind of remember the postman version the hollywood version but you know the french last turning is you know the full like trial or not full trial but there's like a lot more attorney business and like the wheeling dealing of the, the criminal system and all that and the the italian one is not at all interested no. in that no doesn't that skips it doesn't care i mean i think probably wisely understands that there that would that would have no place in that particular right. story that that visconti is going after it it really it uh, hats off to him. It really feels like Visconti just um, just just took the essence of the story, preserved it, and that's what's that's what's great about it. Um, like the the I, I as I talk through this, I talk myself into liking Kane's, if not if not the the finer beats of it, the the, Broad the dynamic that he has set up all the more because it is so inherently simple. And adaptable mm-hmm. into something like like this, and I, I I appreciate that. Sure, no, I mean that's you know why Shakespeare is still alive today is because it is so malleable and adaptable while still being true to itself. Um, you know something else I think that connects all three is that all three have a woman who's in the situation because she was previously a sex worker, right? Like all three of our femme fatales were making 
their trade how they could. And then a man comes along and offers them marriage and stability, which turns out to be a trap for them too. So as much as like the woman is like, as I was just kind of mockingly saying, the corrupter of our male lead, in all three, they've not not as much in in Levet Human. I feel like that kind of was a all right situation until he he finds out about her past. But the um, in in both of the the postman situations, like she feels obligated, and she is as much trapped by her husband as Frank becomes trapped by her. And and so I I made a note about about the femme fatale and having a. a a capitalist streak here. And I think that this gets picked up on more in, in Hollywood. But when you look at this postman, the po postman adaptations in particular, she's she wants to keep the business. She wants to grow, to grow the business there and to start that and it's and, and it's not it's not capitalism in the ultra corrupted uh, um, uh, monstrous version that we that we've you know rightly villainized today. But it it's certainly like when you compare to this man who just wants to be free and Rome right. she, uh, and she is a woman of ambitions. She has ambition. She wants to grow something, to build something, and he just wants to roam. Yeah. To return to nature. Untethered. To a natural state. No, I think these are, you know, as I was kind of saying at the start, when I first started Libetu Men, I was like, well, is this really the right spot for this? And by the end, I was like, no, this makes perfect sense. And by the time I watched all three, I was like, no, these all three are. are like almost the same movie, but also very different in very interesting ways and also capture world cinema at the moment before noir. And really, I think is a good half, like in between step between the fallen woman movies that we looked at last episode and starting with next episode and fully entering like femme fatale, double indemnity. It's a very clear through line um, along I, the way. I, I think this is one of the, the strongest groupings that that um thematically they're also all great movies had. like they're not none of them are home runs for me but they're all i enjoyed watching all of them none of them felt like homework they all had different like, strengths either. that that made them worth watching um these are all all very worthwhile uh very worthwhile to check out um and uh and and even even if you aren't familiar with Visconti or Renoir, I, I think e either of those are are, are a, a decent entry point to, yeah. to both. They're directors. very accessible. Yeah. Very very glad we got to to kind of lay this groundwork. We are going to be jumping into Hollywood for a good long while now. Five um, or six episodes. There's, there's a, a lot to cover ahead, um, and a whole lot of noir classics that we've got in the coming weeks, um, which I'm pretty pumped about. Yeah, me too. And I think I feel like we have a pretty good balance of most episodes being, or this next run being 50 50, at least for me, of classics that I've seen and and then either classics that I haven't seen or like seemingly underseen gems that I'm excited to finally watch. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like it's gonna be good for me, mix good mix of new and, and old or new. And yeah, familiar. I think we're 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 nearly the same. And then when we get into the fifties, I'm I'm a little bit more unmoored from uh, from from the picks that we've got. So I'm. Oh, I mean, I feel like that there. like stretch when we get from like the fifties through to the eighties is gonna be. I mean, it, it's it got some pickings there, and so we might we're picking some. I mean, it's some stuff that I'm excited to watch, but I think some stuff that's kind of really off the beaten path to get us to the neo-noir yeah. and the erotic thriller and all that but that's yeah. down the line that's down the line. months and months yeah. away um but right now well, is there anything else you uh you want to throw into wrap uh, up our no i think that, that covered a lot of my my thoughts on it. i know it's three three like really great european cinema piece of european cinema worth watching all three absolutely all right so time for that classic segment of ours what's in the box fred in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Barbie. I'm not going to lie. Like, uh, we were talking about it before we started recording. Um, I got to finally watch it this week. And, uh, you know, not a perfect movie. Um, uh, it's a little it's a little messy, but it's also full of big swings. So I'm, I'm on board. Um, it's definitely going to be on my list of the best of the year and uh just put a smile on my face 
almost the entire time I was right. in the theater. Uh, I'm a big Ryan Gosling fan, and he's he's bringing it. He, um, everybody in the cast is is doing a great job. Dear, dear listener, when Fred says he's a big Ryan Gosling fan, he is a big Ryan Gosling fan. I, it's true, but but uh, but literally, I think like everybody in the cast. I think America Ferrera is doing like great work with what could be a thankless role in different hands. Mm-hmm. Um, it, she she really shows up, and then you know Margot Robbie like isn't as show offy of a role as as what gosling has but really effectively sells the emotional arc of the whole story and i was i teared up a few different times throughout that movie and i was also laughing through a lot of the movie um my uh my hot take is that uh bo is afraid and barbie are the same movie <laughs> and uh, would make a great double feature um i i that is a fascinating prospect oh my god i don't think bo would handle being in barbie land very well no. i don't think that would go well for him at all no uh what about you Justin? Yeah. well um uh, i um i've been thanks to criterion i've been uh as i think i know did already in this uh recording mm-hmm. Binging a lot of pre-code lately, and specifically, they've got a K. Francis collection on right now that I was very excited because I'm a, a, a big, big fan of Trouble in Paradise, uh, and uh, and and the best one I've found so far uh, is actually directed by Tay Garnett, who directs Postman Always Rings Twice, which we're going to be getting to, um, and it's called One Way Passage, and it is K. Francis and and William Powell together on a boat she has an incurable illness he is wanted for a crime they are both uh destined to end up clashing with each other and it's a nice tight little i think under under 70 minutes it's um it it is efficient gets to the point tells a good story uh gets in gets out um has two of the most charming actors of the 30s uh right bouncing off each other i i could want nothing more no i've been following your reviews on letterboxd as you explore the 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 set and i definitely am gonna check out the um at the very least the william powell k francis pairings um, they they burn through and yeah powell is such a delight i mean i'm a yeah i'm i'm a pal stan through and through um i just watched Um, uh uh how to marry a millionaire uh, and he is very charming in that. He, he just doesn't like no one else. And and I'm adding, I, I've I've been a Powell fan for quite a while. I am I am firmly a K. Francis fan now. Mm. She is um, she she brings a lot to and uh, and just the two of them together, absolutely delightful. Can't wait. Hopefully, I'll be able to to replicate that as a recommendation. Excellent. Well. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time when we'll finally touch down in America with a seductive double billing courtesy of noir grandmasters Billy Wilder and Otto Preminger, also a, uh, a Dana Andrews double billing. Uh, The golden age of the femme fatale is about to begin. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.